Hello, I'm Leanne Townsend, the owner of Townsend Family Law and an experienced family law lawyer practicing in all areas of divorce law in the city of Toronto. Welcome to Divorcing Well. In this week's episode, I'm really excited to have a returning guest, family lawyer Patricia Nelson. And we have a fabulous topic. I think it's going to be of interest to so many listeners. And it's the topic of parental alienation. So welcome to the podcast again, Patricia. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you again, Leanne. So for listeners who um, may not have uh, heard of the previous podcast where we chatted, can you just give them a little bit of information about your background? I mentioned you're a family lawyer, and can you let listeners know a little bit about your practice and the work that you're doing? I practice exclusively in family law, Leanne. I've been doing this, I guess, about 20 years. For 19 and a half of it, it's been focusing on family law. My area of interest is high conflict parenting, and um, I, I find that uh, challenging to say the least. We see a lot of sad things, but it is a challenging and gratifying area of law to practice. Yeah, definitely. Parental alienation, that's, that's our topic today. Maybe we could start uh, by having you tell listeners what exactly is parental alienation? Parental alienation, you dial it right down, it's a phenomenon where one parent will basically remove the child from the other parent's life. In and around 1985, there was a child psychiatrist in the United States, and he was a clinical professor at Columbia University's medical school in the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. And he coined the phrase parental alienation syndrome. This was Dr. Richard A. Gardner. He passed away in 2003. He rightly defined it is that when one parent attempts to turn the children against the other parent, and his uh, thoughts were considered junk science at the time. But as we all know, it's real. Now, I, 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 I'd like the listeners to understand, I'm, I don't have a medical background, I'm a lawyer. Um, so what I've done is research, I've read papers, and... What I'm doing is I'm drawing the theories together and presenting it from a clinical perspective based on literary analysis and bringing it into what we do. And any family law lawyer has experienced this, unfortunately. There's a very interesting paper uh, written in April of 2022 by two doctors uh, from the U.S., uh, Alan Lotke and William Burnett. And what they describe parental alienation is that it's a pathological phenomenon where one child is convinced by a parent that the other parent is unworthy, dangerous, maladapted, and should be rejected. And the child is convinced of this through various tactics and maneuvers by the parent who is alienating the child and the other parent's relationship. Now, like anything else, alienation can be mild, 
moderate, or severe. The intensity depends on the situation and the campaign, so to speak. In the severe cases, the relationship is entirely severed. So there is no relationship between, we'll call it the other parent and the child. And this rejection, it's not only devastating for the parent, but also for the child. And, and why is that? Because I think people need to understand that when you do, if you do try and alienate your child from the other parents, or you involve your children in your divorce and say bad things about the other parent and draw the child in, you're not just getting revenge or hurting that parent, you are hurting the child. So how does it impact the child? The authors I just mentioned, they, they have written that causing parental alienation of child is on par with physical and sexual abuse. It's psychological abuse. And in the DSM-5, it's subsumed. It undermines the child's psychological development. And it can be catastrophic for that child to have gone through that. The child will align with the alienate war, so to speak. Because children, it's counterintuitive that a parent will harm a child. And children will look to their parents for guidance, love, safety, and everything they need. And children will look at what they need on a day-to-day basis and how that fits into their tomorrows. And if the parent, if the if the alienating parent, pardon me, is presenting the other parent as harmful, then the child even could experience fear that this is a form of abuse. Now, I'm not talking about the situations where there is actual abuse. We unfortunately we see that. And children are abused, either physically, uh, and I'll refer to sexually, apart from physically, but that's also physical, but also emotional. So children are harmed. But what we're talking now is emotional manipulation. That's what we're talking about right now. It's, it's trite to say that our judges know what it is. Um, in the Nova Scotia case, Justice Chiasson defined parental alienation since Williamson power, where it's a process where one parent's role in the child's life is systematically eroded over the course of time. So it's a campaign. And we've seen it. We've seen the campaign. And from my perspective, uh, it's very difficult for us to see this because we're, we don't live with these people. And we're hearing one side of the story that the mom or the dad is horrible, 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 and the other mom or dad is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Well, that doesn't happen. There are times when the children will parrot what they're listening to and that they're, what they're saying is, isn't independent. How do we get out of that? That's very difficult. Very, very difficult. I was working with 
a pediatric psychiatrist and neurologist a number of years ago. And this doctor, she practices in the United States, and she deals with children with developmental challenges, ADHD, um, those sorts of uh, issues. And she came up with um, a diagnostic triangle. And what she was noticing is that in severe alienation cases, there can be organic changes in the brain. Child can develop PTSD. Now, PTSD is in the DSM. Right. But parental alienation is not in the DSM. And as I mentioned, it's because the authors are, were concerned that it can be a catch-all and that children can be misdiagnosed. The DSM-4 is what I looked at, but I, I, and I couldn't uh, access the DSM-5. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about how the, this relates to children. And we see it all the time, sadly. Now, let's take a step back and talk about PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. And what events cause it in children? There's a lot of um, a lot of obvious events, uh, sexual physical abuse. They see somebody killed or badly hurt. Uh, disasters, floods, car crashes, shootings, anything that they witness that are catastrophic. Now, the other thing. Uh, is seeing violence and witnessing violence. And this can be violence in the home, and it doesn't have to be physical. It can be verbal. It can be hollering, shouting, denigrating. A lot of what we hear happens in the home. When children witness that, they will internalize it. Now, um, to give you an example of how pervasive this is, and these numbers are somewhat dated. However, I don't think I don't think they've gone down. In the United States, there's was approximately seven percent of children have witnessed psychological abuse in them, where parents will argue and they will disagree and nobody gets along all the time, depending on the severity of it. And not only the severity, but the frequency. Children's exposure to that doesn't go away. It compounds. There is somewhere between three, it's a wide range, three and 10 million children annually will witness family violence. 
and between 40 and 60% uh, involve child physical abuse. Hmm. Now, a lot is not reported, unfortunately. And we're also we're talking about the United States, and these are American statistics. Um, and the population in the U.S. is much greater than it is in Canada. But this is only to uh, exemplify how many children are exposed to violence in the home. Violence can be physical, and it can be emotional, which is psychological. And it happens. Now, PTSD can or may occur after witnessing a traumatic event. And a traumatic event is something that's terrible and scary. You hear about it, you see it, or it happens to you. A traumatic event is something where you think that your life or somebody else's life is in danger. That's considered a traumatic event. And you can feel afraid or that you have no control over what's happening around you. And children have very little control over what's happening around them, and they can feel afraid. Because they look to their parents for guidance and security. And when parents are going through a, a separation, they don't have a whole lot of control, they feel. They're trying to maintain control, children have less control. In fact, they have no And this is what starts with it. The risk factors for PTSD uh, are interesting. The factors have been shown to raise the chances for children to develop the disorder, and they are the severity of the trauma, how the parents react to the trauma, such as one parent shouting or hollering or physically threatening the other one, does that parent hide? Does that parent leave the house? Does that parent fight back? Children see that. And the third uh, factor is how close the child is to the trauma or conversely far away from the trauma. So we have severity, reaction, and proximity to the traumatic event. Now, it's been found that uh, children and teens who go through the most severe trauma, they tend to have the highest level of PTSD symptoms it makes sense that children's symptoms may be less if they have more family support and if the parents are less upset about the trauma. So parents have an argument, they're shouting, hollering, and that kind of thing. If the one parent's saying, you know what, it's okay, I'll deal with it. You know what, uh, let's go for a walk or that. However, that parent handles it. If they have a supportive family, and they say, you know what, let's take the kids for the weekend, that, that kind of thing. All right. Now, oftentimes, 
going through a separation and divorce, there isn't support available for the family. Parents are fighting, kids are there, they're hearing it, they're seeing it, they're exposed to it. And with increasing frequency of the arguments, then the children are going to more intensely experience it. How does PTSD Depends on a whole lot of things. And there's no way of knowing who is going to develop it and who won't. But here we're talking about children. And some children can go through their parents' separation and divorce and they're okay. And oftentimes, most of the time actually, can come through the retirement of your marriage in a healthy way. Depends how you manage it because they take their cues from you. So if you're managing it effectively, the children will come out of it okay. And in fact, there could be valuable life lessons there for the children. Some of them can be, you know what? It's okay to realize that a relationship is over and that it's retiring. You know, long gone are the days where you stuck it out through thick and thin till death do you part. Um, it's, it's a nice concept, but it doesn't always work. And children can learn how to retire a relationship in a healthy manner, how to maintain a relationship with somebody who you once lived with and had a family with, but you can't do that anymore. Children learn conflict resolution through parents who are going to handle it in a healthier manner. I'm not saying for a moment that parents have to be perfect when they're going through it, because we're human, adults are human, we weren't born adults, but children can learn valuable life lessons through it. Now, when they're going through an acrimonious family disillusion, uh, developing PTSD, as I said before, it's how intense the trauma is, how long it lasted. Was the child injured or did the child lose someone important to them? How close was the child to the advantage? How strong was the parent's reaction to what happened? How in control did the child feel and the help and support? So it's multifaceted. It's not just one thing. And it's not from one argument. It's, this happens over a period of time. And it also depends on the child, the age of the child the sensitivity of the child, how the parents related to the child before, all, a lot of factors come into it. Now, there's two age groups that I looked at and what PTSD can look like in children. And we'll talk about school-age children from 5 till 12. They may not have flashbacks, or they may have problems remembering the traumatic experience the way that adults do. 
However, um, they also may put the traumatic events in the wrong order. They might think there were signs trauma was going to happen. And they may see these signs again before another trauma happens. So they think that if they pay attention, they can avoid any further trauma in the future. So they're predicting it. It's a projection. Now, one way of identifying children between the age of five and 12, and this is where uh, children's professionals come in and they're invaluable in helping these children, is through play. Because they, will in, they internalize and it can come out in play therapy. Uh, there's uh, one example, if a child sees a shooting in school, in their play, they can have repetitive shooting games and play that kind of thing. Um, child may carry a toy gun. These are examples that I've come up with. And this isn't my experience or anything, but play therapists identify this. Talk about teens between the ages of 12 and 18. PTSD symptoms look different. Um, and oftentimes, their behaviors are impulsive and aggressive. And that's, this is broad stroke stuff. And it's just scratching the surface. So it shows that younger children tend to be quieter about it. And it has to come out when they're doing busy stuff like playing. And the older children can can act out, not to say they all do, but they can. And this is one way of looking at the symptoms and identifying that they're there. Doesn't mean that all teens are going to, they're not going to at all, but it has to come out in some way, shape or form. Um, the other effects of trauma on children besides uh, PTSD, and we see it, and we hear about it. Children are, are frightened. They're worried. They're sad. They're angry. They feel alone. They feel segregated from other people. And they oftentimes have low self-worth. So then you end up having people concern. And they have difficulty trusting. And if you take a look at that, the people they trusted the most, uh, and we're talking about alienation, have been painted negatively. So if the one person they trust the most in the world is presented as a horrible, horrible human being, then they're going to have trouble trusting anybody else. And that's how their brain is changed. Symptoms of PTSD are documented. It's reliving the event. So it's bad memories, nightmares, flashbacks. So it's almost uh, as if you're just replaying 
same thing over and over again. Now, this one, we see it in our work frequently. And this is where, you know, parental alienation, we recognize it, is evident, is that it's situation avoidance. And what happens, and we're talking about children now, but you're talking about parental alienation, is that the children want to avoid situation or person that triggers memories of any traumatic event. So it's almost self-preservation. They don't want to go down that road anymore. What's an easy way to do that? Avoid it. You're not going to have a child who, let's pick an age, eight or nine years old, who has been told one parent is a terrible, horrible human being, and remembering arguments. And children, children don't have sense of time necessarily, but they know how they felt. And if their parents have gone through arguments and all of the unpleasant uh, events that can happen when they're separating, and that child is being told that the one parent is horrible, 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 and made the other parent feel bad, and that parent did everything he or she could, that child's going to say, I don't, I don't want to go through this again. And I don't want to hear you tell me how you weren't bad. I don't want to go there. And so what happens is the child will not want to go. And why with the parent who says, it's okay, you don't have to go. Stay with me. The next symptom, so the third or fourth, as identified, is there's beliefs and feelings uh, are changed negatively. And the trauma that the child experiences or adult can change the way talk about the child, how he or she, she thinks about him or herself and others. So there can be a change. There's feelings of fear, shame, guilt. That comes into the whole thing. All negative. There's nothing positive going on here. And uh, the child may not be interested in activities he or she used to enjoy because that's a way to avoid memories. Interesting. So just don't want to go there. Not going there. I'm going to stay right where I am here because that's not a good place over there. And fourth one, uh, it's called hyperarousal or feeling jittery anxious, looking for the other shoe to draw, that kind of thing, always on alert. Then there's what comes with that is focusing issues, lack of ability to concentrate or sleeping. And that fits into it as well. Um, and this affects all of these things you see in children. Up to six, 
then they get upset when their parents aren't around. They have trouble sleeping. That's, you know, they want to be with mom, they want to be with dad. Okay. Um, and if they've gone through a trauma, they could have trouble sleeping, toilet training, uh, going, even going to the washroom, and separation anxiety from the parent. And you'll see this where the parent is hyper focused on the child. So one parent's hyper focused, I'm going to protect you, and reliving what is considered to be a traumatic event. And that kid is just gonna stay there. You have children seven to 11 years old could act out the trauma through play therapy, uh, drawing, art therapy, or stories, writing stories, storytelling. Uh, they have nightmares, irritable, aggressive. And they may avoid friends school and because they have problems focusing concentrating problems with schoolwork the kids are just they're, they're, they're shutting down they're just shutting right down then when you go from the ages of 12 to 18 the examples of the PTSD symptoms mirror those of many adults where there's depression anxiety, all reckless behavior, substance abuse, uh, self-harm, or running away. Because that's what they do. That's exactly what they do. The children don't know what to do. Because these symptoms, PTSD symptoms, they are identified in the DSM, and when such a trauma, if it's been that intense and PTSD is developed, there is a school of thought that there have been organic changes in the brain. So it can't just be pull your socks up and let's get on with it. Can't be like that. There needs to be a treatment. Interesting. When we take a look at the diagnostic criteria for PTSD, and we're going to relate this to our work in parental alienation and on the children, is that the criteria for this disorder, it includes a history of the exposure to the trauma. And if you meet two criteria and symptoms from three symptomatic clusters. I'm not gonna get into the clinical part of it. So the first criterion is a stressor. So, children, they experience an event where there's a threat and a personal threat, threat of death or serious injury or the physical integrity, him or herself or someone else. Terrible arguments between their parents. Those are traumatic for children. Parents can say pretty nasty, mean things in the heat of the moment. Children hear it. The response 
is fear, helplessness, horror. And in children, it can be expressed by being disorganized or agitated, can't sit still, can't organize their backpack, whatever the case may be. So there's a stressor. Now, the next one is that the traumatic event is re-experienced persistently uh, in images, thoughts, or perceptions. And as I said before, in play therapy, there can be repetitive play. Children are being investigated where the theme or aspects of the trauma are expressed. So not only in play, but if one parent who is alienating the other parent, the alienated parent could be subject to the child disrespecting him or her, yelling at him or her, physically attacking him or her. So they're actually acting it out. And that was the trauma they experienced. And then they just carry it forward. Now, how many times have we all heard this? My child can't go to the other parents for an overnight because he or she has night terrors. He or she cannot sleep with mom or dad. Well, what it comes down to is that a child is reliving the trauma at night. And it comes in the form of nightmares. And the content isn't necessarily recognizable. And if you have a child young enough, he or she can't tell you what it was. They're just scared. And oftentimes they're still sleeping. But this is what's happening. It's, it's coming out somewhere. So what happens? Children avoid thoughts or feelings or conversations regarding the trauma. How many times do we hear our clients say, Bobby doesn't want to talk to me about it. I've tried to talk. No, nope, doesn't want to talk. So not going anywhere there. How about avoiding activities or people who can uh, perhaps cause a recollection of the traumatic event. Children aren't going to go see that other parent because they're going to remember what happened and, and they're going to be confronted or faced with it. They just don't go. If they used to play basketball with mom or dad and had a really great time, they're not, they may not play basketball anymore because they may remember something okay. Or, conversely, something really, really terrible that could be fun. Now, this is a very important one. And I think we all see it. Is that the child cannot remember a particular aspect or an important aspect of the trauma. So what happens? is one parent is to be blamed. One parent did no wrong, and one parent did nothing right. 
and the child will say, Mom was horrible, terrible. Dad was awful. But Mom was good. Mom destroyed my life. Dad is my hero. It's very black and white. And it's, it can be an inability to see that that is not correct. So that is what's happened. There's been a numbing. Um, the child has diminished interest in activities, feels detached. And this is, we see this as well. And it's called a restrictive range of effect, where the child is unable to have loving feelings towards the alienated parent. And that is very dangerous as he or she grows older and develops because that will or could, I should say more correctly, impact his or her ability to have healthy adult relationships. Now, the next criterion is persistent symptoms of increasing arousal that weren't present before the trauma, difficulty falling or staying asleep, but disrupted sleep patterns, irritability or emotional outbursts, typically anger, concentration difficulties, then you get hypervigilance, and then an exaggerated startle response. But what I think we see most of the time is difficulty concentrating. How's the child doing in school? Is homework being done? What's going on with friends? Angry outbursts, irritability, crankiness, and disrupted sleep habits. Those, uh, I think we see a lot. And that's one of the criteria for PTSD. The next one uh, in identifying whether or not it has developed is uh, the disturbance. Has it lasted for longer than a month? It's lasted longer than a month, then it likely is PTSD. Then we get into the next criterion, which is functional significance, uh, which deals with an impairment socially, occupationally, and other important areas of functioning. So could be familial relationships. Uh, could be if they're playing on teams, sports, anything that requires an engagement. And if the disturbance causes uh, an impairment in their ability to function. Then we get further into it and talk about if it's acute or chronic. It's acute if it lasts less than three months, it's chronic if it's three months or more. The research is ongoing. The 
I don't think there's any end in sight. And when we are brought in to try to sort out uh, the issues, it's, it can be pretty black and white, but we're dealing with a lot of gray. And when we try to pare it down, when we see situations where children don't want to see the other parent, when we have, when we know pretty well that parental alienation is going on, how do we prove it? How do we bring people in? Say, you know what? Let's take a look at this child's brain. And to address it is very, very difficult. Especially when the child doesn't want to speak in such an avoidance mode. How are we going to get to the bottom of it? And then, practical problem is how many parents have the financial resources to thoroughly investigate this because this is not an overnight solution. Yeah, that's the problem, right? Uh, it's expensive to have the necessary and, and appropriate experts in these types of cases. And if one parent is saying, you know, the other parent's an alienator, um, the person being, you know, accused of the alienation may not want to, you know, foot the bill to get to the bottom of it. Um and, you know, so then you get into all kinds of issues about who's going to pay for the experts. And, you know, and again, in, in, you know, in many cases, as you would know, and I know, you know, a lot of people in, in these high conflict situations, they can't afford to pay for psychologists and, and experts and you know, the litigation as it is. No, and it's, it's truly, well, the whole thing is truly unfortunate. And uh, what is very disturbing is that when it is truly happening, it is abuse. It's yes. psychological abuse of children. When, when we become involved and judges become involved and we're reading the narratives, both of them can be compelling. How do we get to the bottom of it? And at the end of the day, how are our efforts helping the child? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the problem too, right? I mean, we've seen cases where there has been parental alienation, but the child is so alienated from the other parent that it's not in their best interest to force them to have parenting time with this parent who they're completely alienated from. So, you know, in that type of situation, the, the alienator has won. And then, and then we've seen cases where there's been complete um, custody using an old term reversals um, because where an alienator, you know, w had primary care of the children and the children were removed from the alienator and put in the custody of the other parent. And that's got to be traumatizing for these poor children too. So it, it's just a very problematic situation without any easy solutions. I, I don't think there is a solution, Leanne. 
unfortunately. And I think um, it would be a full-time job, and it is a full-time job, to delve deeper and deeper into the issue of parental alienation. And what I found very disturbing is that in the severe cases, in accordance with the criterion for PTSD, that these children do develop the symptoms and they suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder after having been put through the ringer, so to speak, of what's happened. And unfortunately, a lot of children uh, will permanently sever a relationship with the parent. That is a horrible, horrible situation for the parent, for the child, and for the extended family. How prevalent do you think like true parental alienation is because I know in, in my experience, it tends to arise as an issue more often in cases where there's allegations of abuse or domestic violence. You know, it, it, to me, it can make sense that children are, if, if dad is beating mom or abusive to mom, the kids could, you know, it makes sense that they would be afraid of dad and maybe they don't want to be around dad. And and maybe if dad's abusing mom, he's abusing them too. And so, you know, that would be a case where maybe improperly an allegation of parental alienation is being made. The abuser saying mom's alien, you know, alienating the kids from him, but he's actually, their mom actually isn't. Uh, the children have just observed this domestic violence or been abused themselves. So they don't want to be around dad. They're afraid of dad. Um, but there are cases where, you know, there really has been parental alienation. Um, it's not a situation of, you know, the abuser's actions causing, you know, the children to to fear and not want to be around them. So I don't know, in your experience, how prevalent do you think the problem of, of parental alienation is? The incidents aren't that high. I would, I would say when it happens, though, it's a humdinger. That is uh, a tough, tough hill to climb. Uh, my experience, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's along a spectrum. And there's, you know, unnecessary pressure put on children to align with one parent. Uh, you know, you're going to have uh, the preferential parent because he or she is the fun one, not the disciplinarian, lets uh, the child or children stay up later, that kind of thing. And, you know, it's all, you know, the other parent was always the heavy sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, there's a division of responsibilities when the family is intact. Now, um, the difficulty when it comes to the cases where there is alienation is in persuading decision makers to see what's going on, to perhaps ask the right questions and to take the necessary steps to address it. And if 
I, I'm not here to discuss reunification or how to deal with it and, you know, talk about the best interest theory and, you know, any of the models surrounding that. Um, then you get into, as, as you mentioned, in cases where there is alienation, it's situation specific of what's happened. What is that parent doing? Because the parent will hide behind the children. And we spoke about this when you and I met last time. And the parent may truly believe he or she is doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. But they oftentimes hide behind the children. And then there's also the possibility, and I know I'm going to say this incorrectly, but Munchausen's by proxy. Unfortunately, I've had experience with that. What, what, is, what do you mean by that? What does Munchausen by proxy mean? That is where the uh, primary care parent, generally speaking, will be hyper-focused on uh, medical conditions or diagnoses he or she may make themselves of the child having uh, a medical condition and take that child through the ringer. Multiple, multiple, multiple doctor visits and just look for anything wrong with that child medically. And I don't understand it. I'm, I'm not a medical professional. I've, I've read up on it. And my experience as a family law lawyer is that it's next to impossible. That's been my experience. Even I've, I've had to address extreme measures that one parent took, and it's still, it's still defied detection. It's frustrating, Leanne. It's very, very frustrating. Um, honestly, I don't think it's ever going to be resolved. So if someone comes through your door, um, you know, seeking your assistance as a family law lawyer, and they're in a, this person's in a situation where they think they're being alienated from their children, what, what do you say to that person? What's, um, you know, how can we as family law lawyers best assist someone in that situation? So many factors. How old the children are? What has been the history of this family? Um, just, I, I come right out and ask, is there anything to the allegation? Did you do anything? This is all made up. This is somewhere in the middle. So let's create a starting point. The solutions are as diverse as the problems. Mm -hmm. And there's no one size fits all. There's uh, also financial restraints. When we can access, we have we have a you know a whole stable of very, very effective professionals help. But how many people can truly afford them, reasonably speaking? To get proper 
you know, assessments and things like that done. I mean, people are looking at $25,000, $50,000 potentially. At least. And time. And time. And the problem with time is what may be appropriate today or next month may be inapplicable in a year from now. So I, I guess my starting point is to, to gain an understanding of what the situation is. How long has it gone for? Because uh, each family has particular needs and circumstances. Hope that the other side is receptive to working together to repair what's happened. Now, if it is truly parental alienation, there's not going to be cooperation from the other no, side. For sure. Or if there's, faint, if there's faint cooperation, there'll still be backdoor manipulation. Yeah. So the unfortunate reality is it can't be fixed. It can't be fixed until the child, hopefully the child, sees the light. Yeah, no, and that is, I mean, I agree with you, that is the sad reality. Um, and I, I always like to leave listeners with something, you know, positive or hopeful. What, what can we leave listeners with, on, you know, in, in, on this topic that, you know, you have to wait till your child is old enough to, to see the light? Is there some, you know, or you, if you have deep pockets and can dole out, you know, enough money for the appropriate experts, maybe you'll be okay. Or, you know, what other hope or light can we, can we give to listeners in this situation? Parents can rely on their extended family for support. And if the children have a relationship with aunties, uncles, grandparents, uh, those relatives, those relatives can support the parent who has been alienated or whose relationship has been affected. Uh, because I don't see too often where the parent is not uh, involved at all. That's very extreme. And I haven't had too many extreme cases. So I think you can rely on your extended family to just show this is a really good situation. Um, Tell the child you love them. Tell the child. Don't push yourself on your child. Be present. Be there. Be patient. Children are, are intelligent. They're, they're, they're just little. And they grow up to be teenage. And they grow up to be adults. And they're able to think for themselves, hopefully. Yeah. In the severe cases, I'm not going to say one way or the other uh, that it's it's a lost cause because I don't know the end because it's so it's so individual. Yeah. How uh, how grave the impact has been on that child. So there's no way of knowing. Yeah, it's very fact specific for sure. Exactly. So I think, you know what, count on your support system around you. Let your child or children know you love them. You can't say I love you enough. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, thank you so much, Patricia, for joining me on this really important topic. Uh, if listeners would like to you know, work with you or learn more about you, where can they best find you? Uh, my office is in Streetsville, Mississauga, 57 Queen Street South. Our telephone number is 905-271-8700. And my email address is pnelson, P-N-E-L-S-O-N, at N-E-L-S-O-N-M-E-H-T-A familylaw.com. Well, thank you so much. This has been really helpful, um, such wonderful, helpful information. So I really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks for having me, Leanne. And thank you to my listeners. Please like, subscribe, and join me here again next week on Divorcing Well. Hi, my name is Janet Finaki, and I'm the host of the Resilient People podcast. I interview regular people from around the world who've experienced something major in their lives, bounce back, and found a purpose in helping others be resilient too. They're folks like you and me, and their stories are totally relatable, extraordinary, and inspiring. I had no idea what I could do until I did it. But it's the motivation of doing for other people that you know need support, need help, that you're able to really push and dig and find what you can do. Have an open discussion and not write us off and allow us to actually talk about our disability. Like, don't assume my limits for me. You know, we went for a drive, told her what her mom was going through and what the likely outcome is going to happen. And we both just bawled. And then finally, Kate just said that we need to have hope. And to be resilient, you have to, you have, to have hope. Join me as we get to know some incredibly resilient people. The Resilient People Podcast is everywhere you get your podcasts. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thank you for joining me on Divorcing Well. If you have any separation or divorce questions, you can get in touch with me via my website at www.leannetownsend.ca.